0: Hey there, it's Susan Pierce Thompson and welcome to the weekly vlog. Oh my goodness, so I don't usually date my vlogs unless there's a good reason to and this week there is a good reason to. It is my birthday today. It is June 29th of 2022 and I was born on June 29th in 1974. So I am 48 years old today. And I thought today since Wednesday, which is vlog day happened to be my birthday this year, I would shoot a vlog about eight lessons from 48 years of life. So first, a freebie, an extra one. <laughs> one lesson I've learned lately is don't shoot a vlog if it's right before lunch and your belly's about to be grumbly because you're, you're hungry and your body knows it's mealtime. Um, I'm not heeding that advice today. So that lesson is scrapped. It's, uh, it's not counting as one of the eight, but if you hear my stomach rumble really loudly, um, I'm shooting this vlog just before noon. So there you go. Okay, the first real uh, lesson, the first reflection as I turn 48, how do I feel about turning 48? I feel fine about turning 48. And I've noticed this uh, maybe since I turned 40, I think. Um, I think when you're living well, like in alignment with your values, you know, when you're doing what you feel you should be doing on this Earth, growing old is fine. Uh, Old, older, right, Uh, which happens to all of us. We're all growing old. Technically speaking, we are all growing older every day. And I feel fine about turning 48. I feel really fine. Um, Yeah, that's the first lesson. There you go. Number two is I, for a long time, have been thinking about living my life through a lens of no regrets. I want to look back on my life at every moment of my life to be able to look back, especially on my deathbed and feel utterly at peace with every last thing that I've done. Now, I'm not so foolish as to think that that is synonymous with uh, I have made no mistakes (laughs) or if knowing everything I know and I had to do it all over, I wouldn't make some different choices. That's not what I mean. I mean that I have learned from my mistakes to the best of my ability, done the best I could with the information I had every step of the way, including you know, sometimes I can't do something even that I know is the right thing because I'm just not in a place where my parts are on board with doing that, right? I have done things that I'm like, this is a mistake. And for whatever reason, I'm doing it anyway. God bless me, right? So that's not what I mean. I mean, really no regrets, looking back, no regrets. I stand here today after 48 complete travels around the sun as a woman with no regrets, not one. And I don't say that to boast, I say that to say, Um, I've been doing my best to cull the lessons, to uh, make the breaks into breakthroughs, to um, just learn from what's going on here, to pay attention. And then all the hard stuff actually becomes the best stuff. The things I've done the most wrong are the things that I've learned the most from. So, I mean... An easy example is, of course, you know, I have a history of prostitution and crack cocaine addiction and crystal meth addiction and wicked, wicked, wicked food addiction and breaks in my Bright Line Eating program while I was leading the Bright Line Eating movement and all of those things, right? But I don't regret those things because I have really, really learned from them and taken those learnings into opportunities to be of service to other people struggling with similar things so um, the last thing i'll say about the no regrets thing is for whatever reason i have a way higher bar for myself for my conduct um, as a mother than in any other area of my life and um, my most wicked inner critic parts i don't have any wicked inner critic parts really but the the more wicked of among my inner critic parts are around my mothering. And so I look at my mothering carefully with an eye to, will I regret this on my deathbed? Um, Because I work a lot, right? I have a big career and I work a lot. And I spend a lot of time serving the Bright Line Eating Movement. and, And when I was a psychology professor, I spent a lot of time on that, serving my students. And I'm looking at that with an eye to will I regret this? Will I look back and feel like I put too much emphasis on work and not enough emphasis on my kids? And um, so I have that thought through the lens of no regrets. On my deathbed, what will I think about how I prioritized in the balance of being a busy working mom? Lesson number three is. I have come to really have respect and compassion for how my viewpoint can really change on big things. And it gives me empathy and a soft heart toward other people who think differently than me about big things. So here's an example. I was raised by parents who were hippies in the hippie era of the 1960s and 1970s. and. I was raised with a very sex-positive attitude and a very open dialogue about sex and sexuality all through my upbringing. I started having sex when I was young with someone I was madly in love with, and we had a brilliant, beautiful relationship. And then I had a lot of sexual partners as a teenager. Um, You know, I was doing drugs and drinking a lot then, so that made it easier to have a lot of sexual partners. But uh, I didn't have any issues with that. Like I was fine having a lot of sexual partners. And then when I was 23, I became a Baha'i and I adopted the Baha'i standards of sexual behavior which are utter complete chastity um, until marriage. And marriage is is between a man and a woman. So I met my husband who was at the time a Baha'i also. And during our courtship, we did not have any sexual contact whatsoever. I used to say that our wedding kiss was our second kiss, but then David remembers a kiss that we had on a trip to Washington DC before we got married, another kiss in there somewhere. Um, that's pretty horrifying that, that we did that and I don't remember it. Um, I kind of vaguely sort of remember it, but not really. So um, anyway, literally our wedding kiss was, uh, you know, you could count on, you know, just a few fingers the kisses that we had had before that. And I don't, you know, nothing beyond that, like no touching, no nothing, till we got married. So the upside of that was we really investigated each other's character before getting married and we weren't hopping in the sack all the time and clouding our judgment about that. Um, but suffice to say, I have thought very differently about sexuality at different times in my life. And, you know, now my thinking about sexuality is I'm not a Baha'i anymore, right? So um, so, when I look at issues that are wrecking our world, just really devastating issues, I just have a lot of empathy and compassion and flexibility in my thinking toward think- people who think differently about different issues and, I, and a humility to know, give me 20 years and I might think differently about this issue, right? So it really behooves me to listen to what other people are saying from their perspective and step away from the dogma and step away from the inflexible thinking and really be curious because there are a lot of smart, interesting, soulful, heartful people in this world who think really different things about the big questions of life, right? So um, yeah, and my thinking might change. I just know that about myself, that I'm, I'm always reevaluating, and so who knows what I'll think about this or that in 5 or 10 or 20 years. <sighs> Takeaway number four is when I keep my food simple, my weight is in check. So uh, over the last few years, my weight, I had experienced a little bit of weight na- maintenance weight creep up to the top of my uh, bright body range. And I simplified my food recently and my weight just came off the excess weight and... You know, I mean, we're all in a range of like, I'm still a U.S. size four and have been right for 18 years or something like that. So, we're, you know, these aren't pounds that I was stressed about, but it is very noteworthy for me to realize I can lie about my eating to myself uh, in ways that just still stun me. Right. Like, you know, I, I have not been eating out much. I have really been putting all my food. I mean, I always put all my food on the scale at home, but like just really simplifying my food. Um, An example of that is instead of making a huge salad at night, a 14 ounce salad with beans on top of that, where I would have to put like, you know, two ounces of vinegar on that just to make it wet enough to be tolerable to eat it. um, I'm now having some cooked vegetables with salt and pepper on it and a smaller salad where I need, you know, a tablespoon of vinegar. And, you know, I just cut out a hundred and 20 calories of vinegar out of my dinner, right? Um, Just by keeping my food a little bit simpler. So yeah, the extra weight just came off. And so it's just so interesting to me. I don't think this is everyone's experience. I know that hormones play a huge role and all the things, right? Maintenance weight creep can come from a lot of different places. But for me, for this food addict, for me, when my food is honest and simple, maintenance weight creep isn't a problem my weight is in check all right number five number five is about being happily married so i've shared a lot about my marriage in this vlog and um i was talking with someone who had just celebrated 50 years of marriage and so i asked him you know what's the secret and he had an answer which i I remember and I just love what he said. What he said was, yeah, I'll tell you what the secret is. Two things. Number one, you gotta love your your spouse 70%. (laughs) Like they gotta be 70% a good fit for you or like expect it only to be 70% right. He said, if it meets the 70% bar, you're never gonna find better than that um, because everyone's got issues and, you know, you might find someone that's perfect in ways that your spouse isn't, but they'll have other issues. And you're like, oh, my, my old partner was better than this one. So, uh, don't go around looking for better than 70%. If you've found 70%, uh, you've got a winner. And number two, do more than your fair share to make it all work out. Um, and he said, if both partners keep that in mind, the marriage will be a success. So I love that. And I've, uh, sort of taken that to heart. And then I read something else a long time ago. Um, Someone said, you know, when you're thinking about your spouse, the reality is it's binary. You've either got a good egg or you haven't. Uh, A good egg meaning a good human being, right? Like a, a true good person. And oh my gosh, my David Thompson is uh, the Mensch to end all Mensches, like he's such a sweetheart, deep down core. I married I married him because of his spiritual character. All that investigating of each other's character that we did, that was that was the linchpin for me, and so um, yeah. So there's that as well, and um, yeah, just I notice about my marriage that it really is like one of those. Um, optical illusions. Do you know the square or the cube rather that you can look at and and make it look like one surface is on the top? And then if you look at it kind of longer, you can flip it around and make it make that surface on the bottom. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anyway, my marriage is kind of like an optical illusion because I can focus on the good and the good will increase and I can do my my part to make it incredible or i can focus on the bad and can convince myself that i have you know a marriage that i've got to get out of and it behooves me to focus on the good and one last thought about a happy marriage i noticed because david and i just celebrated 23 years of marriage happy wedding anniversary to us that was 10 days ago june 19th juneteenth is our wedding anniversary of 1999 um I notice as the years go on, I value our shared history more and more and more. And I'm really lucky because David is an incredible mental chronographer of our lives together. Like he remembers everything. He's got an autobiographical memory that I, it just stuns me. I cannot believe the dates and the events and the things that he remembers. And so living with him is such a blessing because he remembers it all. He remembers what we did and all the things. And uh, I, it just it's more and more valuable to me, the older we get together, that we've lived it together all of these years, 23 years of shared history together. You know, I don't think 10 years ago, the 13 years of shared history mattered to me that much, but the longer I spend with one human being partnered, the more the time invested already becomes more and more and more precious. All right, number six. Number six is I stand here today, 48 years old, more convinced than ever that my path is addiction recovery. That is my path. It's my spiritual path. It's my life path. It's my daily path. It's my path this is my path. I am an addict through and through, meaning I have a brain that dupes me into wanting more and pursuing um, intensity, chaos. (laughs) Um, uh, A brain that likes a hit and if it gets it anywhere will start to justify and rationalize all manner of nonsense to get more of that hit. I have a brain that wants more, better, faster now. That is, that is the brain that I have and that's okay it um you know it is what it is and it's a blessing in a lot of ways right I I it's also the brain of an entrepreneur a visionary someone who thinks big thoughts and can create big things and there's all kinds of upsides to it it's also a brain that notices the cues that predict rewards so I'm super savvy about navigating through this world because I know what the contingencies are if we do this we'll get that payoff if we do this we'll get that payoff there's a lot of great things to having a brain like mine, but it is a brain that's prone to addiction. And I thrive when I put my recovery first and I just focus on keeping it simple and doing the next right thing and living my daily pattern of living, which is what I have taught here in Bright Line Eating, right? It's waking up in the morning and having a morning routine, all the things, right? It's my path. I am more convinced than ever. I've tried other paths, I tried the Baha'i faith for a long time. I've tried, um, I guess I haven't really tried any other path in a really wholehearted way, but um, I feel like lately I've come home more to the simplicity of this is my path. This is how I see the world, recovery from addiction. It's my path. Number seven is about forgiveness. So I just wanna share with you some of the lessons I've learned about forgiveness, two lessons. One is that anger, resentments and grudges are built on the story that we tell. A resentment story, right? And really, it's a victim story. It's they did this and they did that and they're not doing this and they're not doing that. And bop, 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 bop. They here's how it went down and here's how it was wrong and they should have. And how could they? That's the victim story. And, you know, the the worst part is that there's parts of us that absolutely believe it's true, right? Um, And some of it might be true, to be fair. And it doesn't serve me to stay angry. It doesn't serve me to hold a grudge, especially as an addict, right? Because that drives me back to my drug faster than anything. So one of the ways out is to construct a forgiveness story, a story of triumph where I'm not a victim, I'm the hero, and I'm the one who is forgiving and understanding the shared humanity and understanding their perspective and rising above the anger. It's, it's a story that I can tell about forgiveness and triumph where I'm the hero. I'm the forgiving hero in that story, as opposed to the hard done by victim. So that's the first thing I've learned about forgiveness is to tell a different story. And that means really honing that story that when I talk to people about the situation and what happened and all that, I'm not telling the victim story of the tragedy of what happened. I'm telling the triumph story of, you know, it's okay. I've forgiven, you know, the the forgiveness story. Right. The other lesson comes from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which many people think of as the essential basic text of addiction recovery. And if you go to a lot of 12 step meetings, you'll hear people talking about forgiveness as and resentment as you pray for them which comes from a story, it's not in the basic text of, of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the first 164 pages. It's in a story at the end that I think is called Keys to the Kingdom. And it's about, um, it's about a woman who had resentment against her mother and she read a magazine article and in the magazine article by this priest or someone, it said, if you, if you resent someone, pray for them, pray for them every day, for them to have everything that you most want in life for two weeks, pray for them. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. I think it's a great idea, right? And people have honed the prayer for them. You're praying for them to have, you know, connection and happiness and health and prosperity and all the things that you would most want in life. Great. Pray for them. I think that's a great idea. That's not actually the guidance in the basic text of the big book, though, about what to do when you have a resentment against someone. What it says in the big book is to pray for yourself for you to see them with different eyes, for you to remember that they're spiritually sick like you are, like we all are, to treat them with as much kindness and compassion as you would cheerfully grant a sick friend. And what I do when I resent somebody is I imagine them having just had brain surgery and their head is wrapped in bandages and they're in the recovery room in ICU and they're behaving in all kinds of ways. I don't appreciate, but they just had brain surgery. So of course it doesn't bother me. I just treat them kindly and they're there, it's okay. No, you don't need to, you know, throw your glass of water at the nurse. It's all right, you know, like let me take that glass from your hand, it's okay. You know, you just think of them that way because we're all just doing the best we can, right? So anyway, those have been my big lessons around forgiveness and number eight from 48 years of life this is one i've learned recently money is the root of all evil and fame is hell so that is a line from an ed sheeran song i mean money is the root of all evil probably comes from the bible Uh, but uh in the song eraser ed sheeran says i think that money is the root of all evil and fame is hell and uh at that point that that song was released he was certainly in a position to know and I don't think exactly that, but what I will say about money that I've noticed is that it's fractal. I don't think it's the root of all evil. I think money is an energy. I've, I definitely try to be very open-palmed about it. I just try to give it as fast as it comes. Um, uh, the more money I have, the bigger tips I give. and you know. And if I have less money, I still try to give really big tips because my dad was a cab driver when I was growing up. So I just learned you got to give big tips. So I just try to pass it, right? Just pass it, but, but money is fractal. And what I mean by that is, do you, know, do you know what a fractal is? It's often found in nature and it's a structure that looks the same no matter how close you're zoomed in or how far away you zoom out. So you go 10 times closer in and it looks like a teardrop. You go 10 times closer in and it still looks like a teardrop. You go 10 times closer in and it still looks like a teardrop. That kind of thing, right? Um, Or further away or further away or further away. That's a fractal structure. Money is fractal in that I've had very little of it in my life and I've had more of it in my life and my relationship to it has stayed the same. The only difference being I worry about it and think about it more the more I have. Um, Because for me, having more of it has meant having employees and having payroll and it's a stressor, right? It's just more of a stressor. But what I've noticed is what really matters is my relationship to how much i have meaning am i living within my means am i spending significantly less than i have and if i'm doing that i feel comfortable and easy about it for example with Brightline eating if the business is taking in significantly more than we're spending i'm not worried about making payroll because i know there will be the money there if the business isn't profitable, then I'm really stressed. I'm stressed about it, right? It's the same with the family budget. It doesn't matter if I'm making a family budget of, you know, 50 grand a year or 150 grand a year or 250 grand a year. If I'm spending more than that, I'm stressed about it. If I'm living underneath my means, then I am completely not stressed about it. And of course, it's, easier in some ways if you get really, really low. I don't even know if this is true. I was gonna say if you get, if you you make way, way less. I don't know that that's true though, Uh, in my experience. um, I was about to say, if you make way, way less, it's harder to live within your means. That has not actually been my experience, honestly. I'm sure it's true on some level, especially once you have kids. Once you have kids, I'm sure it's true. But uh, when I was making the least, I found it easy to live within my means. I rented a single room. I, you know, spent very little at the grocery store and, you know, I I had a hand-me-down car that I'd gotten from somewhere that, you know, was worth a couple few hundred dollars and that was it. Um, I have not actually found it hard to live within my means. And the good news is I know that I could do that again if I had to, just, you know, rent a room and, So I don't think money is the root of all evil. I just have been stunned at how it doesn't help anything. It actually uh, is just stressful. It's just stressful. And fame is hell. Money is the root of all evil and fame is hell. Um, Fame is terrible. It really, really is. I don't have big fame. Thank you, God. But it's very isolating and lonely. And it damages and warps all manner of connections, because when people are interacting with you as a schema that they have in their mind, it's, it's a very different human interaction than if they arrive to that interaction without a schema of you in their mind that they have this huge relationship with and so forth. And so what I've noticed is I'm lonelier than I used to be. And I guess the upshot of this is happiness is not at all related to increased money or increased fame. Now, I used to teach that in positive psychology that people are uh, blessed with a bigger bump in their happiness when they join a singing club that meets once a month than if their salary is doubled. And people have a hard time believing that, but it's very true. And what I've noticed for myself is, the two things that lead to the most happiness are structure and good in-person human interactions. I guess they don't have to be in person, they can be on the phone, but really heartfelt, one-to-one human interactions where there's no power dynamic. I'm not their boss or their, or their Susan Pierce Thompson or whatever. It, it's just a, a good heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul human connection. Um, yeah, that's the eighth one. And of course, I have to throw in a ninth one just because I intend to live, God willing, to age 49. So this is the and many more. (laughs) Um, So the ninth one is the bonus one is learn from the younger generation. There's a quote by Khalil Gibran that means so much to me. It's from his poem on children from the book The Prophet. And it's so beautiful that poem it just goes um, I mean, I don't know if it's a poem, prose, whatever it is, but you know, your children come through you not from you and Um, you know, they live in a time in the future that you can't visit and all these amazing things. But it says something like, strive not, you you can strive not to make them like you, but you can strive to be like them. And my children are engaged in a world in which gender is not what it was when I was growing up, where there's boys and girls, and then there's people who are gay and people who are transgender. Um, But their conception of gender is completely different. And, and very scientific, frankly, because scientifically, there's three parts of the brain that get genderized and hormones and Uh, sex organs, and they all can be uh, genderized differently. So for example, your sex organs usually contribute to the sex hormones that get circulated in your body, but not always, Uh, there can be uh, pathways that block certain sex hormones from uh, being produced. So you could have male sex organs, but female sex hormones, and then the three parts of your brain can be genderized totally differently. So that's one, two, three, four, five different combinations. So two to the fifth, right? Two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two 16, 32 different combinations of gender identity that just could be created um, in terms of the biology. So, you know, anyway, um, my children have started to say things like, uh, here's, a, here's an example of a conversation with my daughter, Zoe. Um, she was talking about a, a kid in her class, um, someone named Timothy. And she was like, well, I think Timothy would want to come. He blah, blah, blah about a birthday party. Right. And then she said she stopped herself and she said, oh, I've never asked him his pronouns. I think Timothy would want to come. They uh, usually like going to parties like this. They really like uh, altitude and trampoline parks. So they would want to come. They speaking about Timothy. Timothy being a little boy in her class that I would have, you know, no issue just using he, him pronouns for, except that Zoe had never asked him if his pronouns were he, him. So Zoe would never deign to genderize someone without their permission. (laughs) Like gender is something that you put on somebody, right? And you wouldn't like you wouldn't um, Uh, invest on them the mantle of uh, boyness if you haven't asked if they prefer to be identified as a boy. So when, when when she just said that, oh, I've never asked him his pronouns. They would like to go to altitude, I'm sure. It was all completely subconscious that she said that. And I was just like, my head just cocked to the side, like, what? Like, our children are thinking differently about gender. Now, however you might think about that, I'm sure my listeners and viewers have all manner of uh, thoughts about that. Um, I guess I'm of the opinion that I'm not 100% sure that we got um, gender 100% right in my generation, Um, men and women and boys and girls, and I am not sure. And some of my favorite people like Prince um, certainly were very gender bending. So um, yeah, all right. I will not strive to make my children like me. I will strive to learn what they know and help them be who they are and help them help me see the world through their eyes because they're very young and very fresh and very refreshing so that is my ninth takeaway that i will ponder for the next year i'm sure as my children are 14 14 and 10 and i'm learning all kinds of stuff from them so Long enough, the weekly vlog this week. I am done sharing my lessons. I'm 48. Happy birthday to me. Thank you so much for listening to me for all this time. Goodbye. I love you. That's the weekly vlog. I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to Brightline Living. Please post a review and subscribe to our channel. Interested in learning more about Brightline Eating? Visit ble.life slash podcast to find out more ble.life slash podcast. Have a bright day.